Amen. All right. Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. We're all central today. All right. Um, my name is Justin, one of the pastors and elders here at Peninsula Grace. And uh, we are, as we just sang, our hope is in him only. And we're going to talk a little bit about that hope and what the Bible has to say about that this morning. Uh, we uh, are not yet back with children's ministries. And so if you do need to get some respite, room number three in the back is our cry room. We do have the uh, feed coming in there on a TV there. You can still listen to uh, the sermon while you're in there doing what you got to do. I uh, also remind you, as Rana talked about giving, uh, we can give directly to missionaries or the church in general. You can go online to our website over to give that link or in the back here we have a, a box there in the back by the sound cart that you can drop a cash or check into as well. So we're going to be starting our Christmas series this morning and I've noticed that there are many people on Facebook who are showing that they're already putting their Christmas trees up very early this year. People saying things along the lines of well in the midst of all the craziness we wanted to get a head start on the Christmas cheer and so Jill and I have done that too so we've actually had our tree up since since late March. Uh, just in light of the pandemic. And it's amazing that it's still alive. It's, it's a miracle. Uh, praise Jesus. So we thought, well, since Christmas, early Christmas seems to be the trend, uh, let's get our Christmas series going here in November, right? Uh, and I've been hearing many people, when they say this, what I'm hearing people say is we need hope. That many of us are losing hope. Maybe some of us feel like we've lost hope, want to give up. We're in the struggle right now. And the, the tree and the lights and the, and the decorations, they point us toward this light at the end of the tunnel. It points us toward hope. But we know that I mean, Christmas Day, it, it, it's going to come and go, right? So it's, for all the excitement that we have, it's November. And I put my Christmas tree up yet. For all the excitement that we have, we know that the day of Christmas will come and go, and once again, it will leave us with the carnage of boxes and bows. It will leave us vowing that in 2021, we're going to eat better, right? And we mean it this time. But then what's going to happen? Then comes December 26th, and it's still cold and dark, and there's still a pandemic. Merry Christmas, right? You're like, oh, the Pastor Grinch over here. Uh, our hope is not in December 25th, because there will be a December 26th. What is our hope in as believers? Where is that hope that Romans says, Paul says, there's a hope that does not disappoint. That's the hope that we need. Well, today we're going to be starting our series on Advent. This is the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. Um, today is actually week one of those four Sundays prior to Christmas. And each week we're going to look at a theme of the Bible, a word, and then we're going to light a candle. Gary and Jill came up earlier and read a passage for us and, and lit one of these five candles. And each of the Sundays will light one of these candles. And on Christmas Eve, we will light what's called the Christ candle in the middle there. Now, this is a tradition that's been carried on in some form since the Middle Ages. The modern form of this wreath and the candles that we see today was started by a German missionary in 1833. Uh, he headed up an orphanage and he wanted to help guide the children in their anticipation and their excitement for Christmas Day. And so he came up with this Advent wreath and candles. So what is the purpose of Advent? Well, as you see on your screen here, it says Advent, the word Advent means the arrival of a notable person or thing or event. And so Advent was built around the expectation of the Christmas season, the arrival, arrival, arrival of the most notable person of all time. Of course, we're talking about the coming of Jesus, the arrival of the hope of the world in the form of a baby in a manger. 
this is a season uh, about Advent, about hope, about waiting for the arrival of someone. And we are in the season of waiting, right? We're waiting as children are freaking out, waiting for Christmas morning, the expectation of presence. And we are also waiting, we're all in this expectation of life getting back to normal, right? To be able to live beyond this pandemic and not have to do Christmas parties over Zoom. That's what we look forward to. So this morning, we want to talk about biblical hope. This is going to be the first of our four themes for the Advent season. This idea of hope. And we're going to ask the question, why do we need hope? What is, what is hope? And, and what is the purpose of hope in our lives today? And my central claim this morning, based on God's word, uh, is this. That hope for the future based on faith in the past, frees us to love in the present. Hope for the future, based on faith in the past, frees us to love in the present. So let's look at God's word together. The first question is, why do we need hope? Why do we need hope? So we're going to go to back to the beginning. God's promise to Adam and Eve. We're going to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place. Do start. Very good. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. All right. So uh, we're going to go to the beginning where God creates this perfect home for mankind, the Garden of Eden. He gives them everything they need. They have food, they have warmth, they have protection, and most importantly, they can be with their God. And God says you can stay there forever with one condition. And that one condition, he says, I want you to trust my heart for you. And and trusting that, obey this one command. Don't eat from that one tree. The rest of them are fair game, but not that one. And what does he say in Genesis 2? The day you eat of that tree that you distrust and disobey, in that day you will die. That word death means separation. He says, if you don't trust and obey me, you will be separated from me. And of course we know what happens. Dude, the one tree that you weren't supposed to eat from, they eat from it. And what happens? They are exiled from the garden and from the presence of God. And he puts this angel ninja warrior thing up to make sure that they don't come back. And man and woman are cursed. And the very ground, creation itself is cursed. And suffering and pain and and death enter into the world through sin. But God's right there in the middle of that curse. In the middle of the curse, he makes a promise He makes his promise in Genesis 3.15. He says there's going to come a seed, an offspring from the woman, who will defeat the offspring of the serpent, the symbol of sin and death. He says that that deliverer will crush the head of the serpent and sin and death. He will be stricken in his heel, but he's going to crush that serpent, this rescuer of mankind from sin and death. There's hope in the midst of the curse. So now Adam and Eve and their descendants, they need to wait. Wait for God's promise of rescue. Wait for God's promise of reconciliation. That he will bring them back into the garden. That he will bring them back into the presence of God. Hope in the midst of the curse. And then we see, we pass forward, we see God's promise to Israel. Um, God unfolds the next part of his rescue plan to a man named Abram, or Abraham, 11 chapters later. In Genesis 12, he says this, Abraham... Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family. So leave your home, is what he says to him. Now, how many of us would fail right here? Leave everything that you know and love. Go away from your home. Now, some of us here in the darkness of late November are like, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Anywhere you want to send me, that's warmer and brighter, right? I am your servant. Uh, He says, trust me, I'm sending you to a better 
home, a better place. He goes on and he says, go to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. And listen to the garden narrative here. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. So do you hear the promises of Eden there? I'm going to bring you back to a land, a place where once again I will dwell with you. You'll be my people. I'll protect you from the haters. I will give you all the blessing you need of warmth and food and sustenance. But then most importantly, in the promise, look at what he says at the end of verse 3. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. He says, Abraham, this is not just a blessing for your family and for your nation, but this will ultimately be a blessing for all families and all nations. Here's another shout out to our snake-crushing deliverer from Genesis 3. That, that this will be a hope and a blessing not just for the people of Israel, but through the people of Israel for all nations, all families to be rescued from sin and from death. But just like in the garden, Israel could only stay in that land in one condition. Just like Adam and Eve were told, do not eat of that tree. That's one command. God says you can stay in the land if you obey the commands that I gave you through the law of Moses. And once again, just like with Adam and Eve, the consequence and the curse for disobedience will be separation. Exile from my place. And in Deuteronomy, he, he warns them. He says, this is what's going to happen. If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. And this is what will happen as a result. For the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship foreign gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. Gods made of wood and stone. If you do not worship me, that white hot worship that Rana talked about. He says you will be exiled from my place and you will worship elsewhere and other gods. No land, no rest, no life with God. That's death. And once again, we, we see what happens. It's Eden deja vu, isn't it? And starting with Assyria in 722 uh, BC, the, the northern ten tribes are exiled from the land into Assyria. And then Babylon finishes the job in 586, cap taking captive the, the southern two tribes of Israel. The people of Israel are conquered and captured, driven into exile because of their sin, just as God said. Now imagine for a moment that you wake up in the middle of the night... And you're being dragged out of your bed, along with your spouse, your children. You're thrown into the back of a bus and, and, and told that you are being hauled off to a foreign country where you will now live as slaves for the rest of your life. The United States has been overtaken by another nation. And imagine what it would be living in bondage in another country far away from everything that you've ever known. What would a day in a life like that be? This is exactly what Israel was facing in Babylon. And here's what God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tells them to do in the midst of their exile. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. They're in Babylon as captives in exile. And he says to do this. He says there's three things. He says, here is how I want you to live. And it's a call back to faithfulness. He says, number one, I want you to live faithfully. It's your next blank. Live faithfully. It's interesting here. Look at what he says. Verse 5. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. Do you hear the garden language here? 
I'm going to plant you here. And I want you to grow a garden. I want you to grow a family. Because it's going to be a minute. You're going to be here for a while. I want you to thrive and flourish. But then listen to the scandalous language that he uses next. He says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Do you hear what he says? Seek the prosperity and peace of the city. Where are they? In the city of their captors, of their enemies. He says, seek the peace of those who have shamed you, who have tortured you, have put you into bondage. This is crazy. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Seek their good. My fist is going to seek your face, right? That's what I'm going to seek. I'm not going to seek your good. But remember, they were called to be a blessing to all nations, including their enemies. So he says, live faithfully. And then he says to listen faithfully. The second one is to listen faithfully. Now, listen to what he says in verse 8. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So there are these false prophets claiming to speak for God, but they're not. You remember Satan's lie in the garden? You won't die. It'll be fine. Do what you want. Eat of that fruit. It's delicious. And the false prophets here, earlier in Jeremiah, their lie was, you're not going to be slaves very long. Two years tops. It'll feel like a weekend. And while you're there, just do what you want. In fact, take matters into your own hands. Fight against them. Take up the sword and fight for your freedom. Don't seek their good. You do you. And God says, don't listen to the lies. Listen to what my word says. And what, is, what does God say to them? Look at the third one. We look forward faithfully. We look forward faithfully. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon 70 years. Spoiler alert. He tells them exactly how long they'll be in Babylon. 70 years. And then listen to the promise. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will. There's your promise word. I will bring you home again. For I know, here's this verse in its context. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. In those days, when you pray, I will listen. But here's the stipulation. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. And then he says in verse 14, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will, promise words, will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. So do you hear what he says? 70 years. Now for many of them, that's the duration of their life. That they will die slaves in exile. But God has a promise and a plan for those people. And therefore they have hope. See, all they've known is slavery. But he says, if you return to me, if you trust and obey me, like I had originally called you to in the garden and then in the land of Canaan, he says, I will return you to your home, to the garden where you're going to find food and warmth and protection, and once again, most importantly, my presence. So why do we need hope? Because just like Israel and Adam and Eve, we have distrusted and disobeyed God, and we have been exiled from him in our sin, from the land of rest, and we need the hope of a rescue. 
So now based on that, let's build a definition here of, of hope based on Israel's story. So what is hope? Uh, first of all, let's talk about what hope is not. Hope is not just optimism, okay? Hope is not optimism or positivity, uh, that just everything's going to be fine, right? I went to basketball at NBC camp growing up, and they had a saying. They said, how's your positive mental attitude? And they would want to ask us campers in the midst of making us run until we puked. How's your PMA, your positive mental attitude, to which we were supposed to reply, boy, am I enthusiastic. I am feeling G-O-O-D, whoo, right? It was insanity. It was like it was brainwashing. Hope isn't just positivity. It's not just optimism based on our circumstances. If that's the case, Israel would have no hope. They're not looking around seeing their land burnt to the ground in exile hundreds of miles away from their home in bondage to the world's greatest superpower going, yeah, I think this is going to turn around soon, right? I am feeling G-O-O-D. No. They're looking around and there appeared to be no hope at all. That they would probably never see their home again. Their hope was gone. So what is hope? Well, the, the Hebrew word for hope is yachal, right? If I call you, yachal me back. Am I right? That's how you can remember that one. And I would define hope like this. Biblical hope is confidently expecting and patiently waiting for God's promises. Confidently expecting and patiently waiting for God's promises. So let's break each one of the three things I want to look at in that, in that definition. First of all, confidently expecting. Unlike optimism, which is based on circumstances, our hope is not based on circumstance. Our hope is rooted in the person of God. Not on our circumstances, but on the very character of our maker of circumstances. Particularly when our circumstances don't, don't look good, Right? Like, I don't need hope. When I'm on vacation in Hawaii with my toes in the sand, I'm not sitting there going, man, I hope it's a good day. Right? Like, if circumstances are good, I'm not. This is what Romans 8 says. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. If you have it, there's no hope. You already have it. It says, but if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. There's part of our definition there. In other words, what he's saying is, is, Hope is only needed when we don't have the thing that we desperately need. In exile, Israel's circumstances were at an all-time low. Things had never been darker. And that's where they needed their hope to burn the brightest. So then if, if hope is not confidence in our, in our circumstances, where does our confidence come from? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. It says, now faith is the confidence, is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So what's the assurance? That word meant a firm foundation that you can stand on. What is our hope rooted in, grounded in? What do we stand on? It's our faith. But faith in what? Because see, faith demands an object. You can't just have faith. I'm a man of faith. Faith in what? I don't know. I just have faith. Right? That's not a thing. Faith is in something. And so what is our faith in? Well, that's another part of our definition. It's God's promises. God's promises. In Hebrews 11, talking about faith, what they were looking forward to in hope, 11 times it says, what God has promised. He promised them these very specific things, and they were looking forward to the fruition of those promises. And here's what faith is. Faith says, faith is in the promise maker. We said it's the character and person of God. It's based on that promise maker's track record of being a promise keeper. You see, in other words, 
in exile, Israel needed to be constantly reminded of their promise keeper. To be reminded. Remember how God started this whole thing? There was a barren 90-year-old woman with no hope of having that child that the nation was supposed to come from. And God promised it, and he delivered. And in the birth of that nation, being rescued out of another enslaved period of time, rescues them out of Egypt, parts a Red Sea, then delivers them into the land of Canaan against way more well-trained armies than they had. The promise keeper, over and over again, did just what he said he would. And that same God that brought you out of exile, or that same God will bring you out of exile back into the land if you trust him and obey him. Hope says, I look back and see God always keeping his promises, and I trust that he will be that same God in the future. And then there's the patiently waiting part, right? Hope involves waiting and waiting patiently. Now, when we read these stories of the Bible, we just kind of go from one paragraph to the next, kind of skipping over along them. But do you notice what it says? 70 years. Think about that. We go, oh, in bondage for 70 years, and then the next paragraph, then they're back. All right, hooray. But 70 years. This pandemic's been eight months. 70 years. And then think about the time from Adam to Jesus was over 4,000 years. The other Hebrew word for hope is chava. I have that chach. It's really fun. Chava. It's this idea, it's this word picture of a cord that's being stretched. There's a tension. The tension in the cord. And in our hope, there is this expectant waiting that we live in this tension. Hope says, I will hold on. I will trust God's word and not take the fruit. I will not fight against my enemy but I will live in the tension waiting for God's timing and God's way. Because see, every single one of God's promises will come true, but you don't stick them in the microwave. They're in his timing, in his way. So to sum it up, hope is confidently expecting and patiently waiting for God's promises. So the last question we have is, is what's the purpose of that hope? That, that confident waiting for God's promises, what, what is the purpose for that for us today? Well, I'll tell you, I'm 36 years old, and this is the craziest year that I've ever lived through. And I know that we all hope to get on the other side of this coronavirus stat, right? Like, we're done. But hope cannot be in circumstances. Because it's not like the pandemic ends and all of our problems go away, right? Like, was everybody completely happy in February? No, right? Our hope, when we want to see our kids get back in school, but that's not where our hope lies. We, we want to be able to cough on each other just like the good old days, right? But that's not where we put our hope, right? It's not in who, who's in the Oval Office. It's not in our circumstances. Because here's the problem. Everywhere we go, we come with us. The ultimate problem is me. What needs to change is me, not primarily my circumstances. And this is the same thing with Israel. Seventy years later, they come back from exile. But guess what happens? Is everything hunky-dory from that point forward? No, because they came with them. In a very real sense, they were still in exile, even when their circumstances changed and they were back home. Because they continued in sin. They continued to be led by sinful leaders. And so God, as he said, he continued to allow them to be dominated by their enemies, the Medo-Persians, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. 
just like us, they were the problem. And what ultimately needed to change was their own sinful hearts. Remember, we said biblical hope is not in our circumstances, but in a person. So which person could they put their hope in? Because all of their earthly kings had failed them. All of the judges, all of their leaders. In fact, no one in Israel could live rightly the way that God had called them to, which takes us back to the garden promise. So he said, there's, there's an offspring coming from the woman. We read the verse earlier. To the people who walk in darkness, they'll see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Isaiah says, you will enlarge the nation of Israel, and as people will rejoice, they will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder, talk of peace and prosperity and bounty. He says, for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. How many hundreds of years have they been oppressed by those other people because of their sin? The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. He says there's a day coming when you'll finally know freedom. And how is that going to get here? Is for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He'll rule. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And here comes the promise. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. What's he talking about? The snake-crushing deliverer will come to free the people, to do what no other human leader had ever been able to do. But that person that Israel was looking for ended up being nothing like what they expected or hoped for or waited for because it was not a king who came to slay the Babylonians. It was not a king who came to take out Rome. It was not somebody who was going to come to bring immediate political freedom. came as an innocent baby in a manger. And he did not come to kill another single person, but for himself to be killed. The silent sufferer speaking loudly. He says, I come to save you from your enemy. But listen, the enemy is not around you. It's not your circumstances. The enemy is in you. And this leader, this deliverer came to deal with our sin, not our circumstances. How did he rescue us from exile, from God in our sin? He left his home. He left his father's throne, came to our world to be the human that you and I could never be. Because unlike Adam and Eve, unlike the people of Israel, unlike you or I, he was the one who faithfully lived according to his father's way, who faithfully listened to every word that his father told him and faithfully looked forward to the promises that God had for him and through him. And then he went into ultimate exile for us. He was abandoned by his father so that he could truly bring us home. 
But he didn't stay down there, did he? The empty tomb became for us a door of hope. And Jesus' resurrection is what Peter calls the hope of glory, that we have a living hope. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus so that you and I can be reborn. He says to be born again, that we could become the kind of humans that God had originally intended back in the garden, that would trust him and obey him and bring him glory by his grace. And Paul calls this, we, we look forward to. We look back on what Jesus has done, what he has given us, but then we look forward to what, what Paul calls in Colossians 1, the hope of glory. Because Jesus is coming back. And, when, and again, in 1 Peter, he says it this way, set your hope, your confident expectation, what we're patiently waiting for, on the grace that we brought to you at the revealing, the revelation, the arrival, the advent of King Jesus Christ. See, Israel's hope pointed them toward his first advent, his first coming. We look forward to his second coming, the return of Jesus. When our deliverer, the snake crusher, will finish the job and free all of creation from sin and death forever. See, Romans 8 says it this way. It says, again, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Remember back in the garden? Everything was cursed, this whole world. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to, anxiously anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay, where there will be no more viruses. More importantly, there will be no more sinful reactions and division over viruses. Will there be no more disobedience or distrust and no more fear, no more pain or suffering? And every single one of the promises that God has made to us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, have been fulfilled in Christ. And to us, he says, with a resounding yes, through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Jesus will return. He will right every wrong. He will reverse the curse of sin and death and bring life. He will bring us back from exile as his children into the garden to once again find sustenance and warmth and protection in his presence forever. That's hope. But that's to come. Our question was, what is the purpose of that hope for us today? What we said at the beginning, that hope for the future, based on faith in the past, does what for us today? It frees us to love in the present. Let's talk that through, then we'll be done. Israel was in exile. Their circumstances offered them no hope. But they had seen their God faithfully rescue them, faithfully protect them, faithfully guide them for hundreds of years. And that same God promised them to free them in 70 years. Hang on for 70 years, and then I'm coming. They just had to wait on him. But this is what they did. It freed them. They didn't have to take matters in their own hands. They didn't have to, they didn't have to defeat Babylon to be free. They had to wait on the Lord and his timing. So in the, in the meantime, they were free to love their enemies, give to their enemies. And you and I, man, we're living in a fallen world of suffering and sickness and death and sin. And if you look around at 2020, man, you would say, is this a, is this, does it look like all this is going to turn around for good anytime soon? I don't think so. But we have the stories of his faithfulness in God's word that we're reading today. And each of us can tell stories to one another of God's faithfulness to his promises in our own lives. And that same God has promised to come back and kick Satan's batuti. 
That's the New Living Translation. We too know how the story ends. And so just like Israel, that frees us to not have to take, to not have to work on our own effort, but we're free to love those around us. So just like Israel in Exodus, in, in exile, let's look at the three things that we're called to do, to live faithfully. Live faithfully. In Babylon, God said, don't just hide it under a rock. Don't just bury yourself in a hole for 70 years. What did he say? Flourish, build, plant, procreate. And as we live through this pandemic, we're not just called to survive. We're called to thrive, to be more than conquerors. So what does that look like? How do we, as he said, work for the peace and prosperity of the city? How do we today live for the peace and prosperity of Sildatna and the regions beyond, like Rana talked about earlier? Well, I'll tell you, since we know how the story ends, we don't have to worry about ourselves. We don't need to hoard toilet paper, right? We have enough in Jesus, which frees us to get our eyes off of ourselves and put them on other people. I want to celebrate some of the ways that we've been doing this this last month. We had, we had called our church to, to put together these Thanksgiving boxes through Love, Inc. to give to those who, are, who didn't even know if they'd have a Thanksgiving meal this, this, Christmas, this Thanksgiving season. And so we put that out there, and, and we want to celebrate that God raised $1,100 through our church for that. that. That's at least 11 Thanksgiving feasts for other families in our area. And that's not including all the, some of you just brought food directly to, the, to Love, Inc., and then we called, we said, we want to we give to the, to the regions beyond and to, and to give shoeboxes to fill with hope and, and, and life and God's truth to these children around the world. And so Amber Fisher, who helped uh, head the way, she packed 61 boxes into the back of her car to bring over to Samaritan's Purse, not including the other shoeboxes that were, that were brought over. And then we said, we need some help because it costs some money to, to ship these things around the world. And so you all raised $1,530, and my favorite part, 36 cents was one of our kids who brought in some coins. Man, we are free to take our eyes off ourselves and think about other people in this time. Because we know how our story ends. We don't have to fear. We don't have to take. We're free to give. But not just to help those in need. We're also called to love our enemies. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So listen, when someone yells at you about masks... When someone comes at you and treats you like a jerk, we don't have to clap back. We don't have to defend ourselves. We know how this is going to end. Jesus will come back, and King Jesus will right every wrong. That's his business, not ours. That's why we can forgive and love, and we don't have to get caught up in all the division and all the hatred toward one another. We can seek to work for peace and prosperity, even for the haters in our lives. And then we listen faithfully. Just like that serpent in the garden that said, you won't die, do what you want. And the false prophets who said, it's going to be over soon, chill out. We hear the lies in 2 Peter 3, where they said, Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. In fact, this might all be one big fairy tale. You do whatever you want to do. And how many times do we buy the lie? And here's what happens. How much of our sin is based on not waiting patiently for God's timing? And in our impatience, we yell back at the person who yelled at us. We have a harsh reply on social media. Or we grab the thing that we think will give us immediate gratification. The pornography, the food, the substance. Instead of waiting on God's timing. And what he has is so much better than what we grab. And finally, we look forward faithfully. We look forward faithfully. So we are exiles here in this version of earth. Brothers and sisters, this is not our true home. 
Not this version. He's going to recreate heaven and earth, and it's going to be much better. But in the meantime, we're pilgrims. Just like those exiles in Babylon, this is not the final version of our home. And so in the meantime, we live in the tension. And we hold on, awaiting and expecting confidently that all of God's promises will come true. You and I do not have to be victims of circumstance, but we can hope in the person of God. Father, we know so many people are hurting in this season. The isolation, the division, the fear is running rampant. And it's revealing our need, Father. Our need for hope in a hopeless world. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are hurting, who feel like they're drowning, that they would find solid ground on your promises. Father, that they would believe, that they would stand in that faith and who you have proven yourself to be over the course of human history and in the story of their lives. And that will be the same God. We can look forward and we can see that hope. We know you're coming back. We know you're going to rule and reign with justice and peace forever. And because of that, Lord, may, may we live that free life that we can give. We don't have to take. Would we be a people who would live faithfully in our community, to focus on the needs of others, Father, it's so much better just to take our eyes off ourselves completely and look at you in that white-hot worship, and then from that, look at other people with the eyes of love, the same way Jesus looks at them, to give and give and give. That's where we'll find life, that we would listen to the truth and not be deceived by the enemy, that we would look forward to that glorious day when you're coming again. Father, because the tomb is empty today, we have a living hope. And his name is Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.